World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Throughout this series, we will be discussing some of the major global challenges we face. Deforestation to global pandemics. In our first season of World We Got This, we will be speaking with experts about the factors at play during a global pandemic, the differing global perspectives, and ultimately, the way in which we can meet this challenge. This podcast was being planned long before the outbreak of COVID-19, but all that changed just a couple of weeks ago. Now, of course, I'm recording this from home, and everyone we speak to in the coming episodes is also going to be working from home. But the key thing is that they're still working. They're still researching, they're still teaching, and they're still trying to understand how we can wrestle with this global pandemic. Because that is what the podcast is all about. So here we go. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name's James Bagley from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. The Centre for Society and Mental Health has only recently launched here at King's. Its aim, and I quote, is to explore today's changing world and help us understand the social factors that shape and promote mental ill health. They probably could not have predicted the scale of change our world might witness in the space of just two months. And yet they have already been working to help us understand how this pandemic is affecting our mental health. This week, I had the chance to speak with their co-directors, Professor Nicholas Rose and Professor Craig Morgan. As you'll hear, we discussed how this pandemic is affecting mental health, what we can do to support one another, and what policy changes government can make to help alleviate some of the effects of this crisis. We also discussed how this pandemic may demonstrate the need for a shift in how we think about the effects of wider government policy on both our physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I want to start by asking a question that we ask all our guests um, on the podcast. How are you um, and how is your lockdown going? Nick, if, if you'd like to go first. Uh, yeah, thanks, James. So um, I have a partner who is uh, deemed by the NHS to be exceptionally vulnerable. So we are shielding, which means we can't go out of our flat at all. We don't even get the uh, the one hour. So it's uh, interesting to learn to live in this small space <laughs> for about four weeks now we've been doing it. We look out of the window and see the weather, but we're fine. Um, yeah, thanks very much, James. I guess a little less um, or a little bit more fortunate than Nick's circumstances. Um, things are fairly straightforward for me. Um, I've, I've stayed fairly well um, and just find a little bit more time to uh, read, um, get out for bits of exercise, but uh, fairly uneventful. Craig, if I can come to you first. What kinds of additional pressures and anxieties might people be facing due to this COVID-19 outbreak and its subsequent lockdown? Thanks, James. I mean, I think actually the uh, different situations that myself and Nick are in tell us that the experience for people is going to be very different during the, the lockdown. And, and then the impact on people's mental health and well-being is going to be very different depending on people's circumstances. I think in general, there is a, a lot of worry um, a lot of upset and distress, and I think that's very natural and understandable. We're living through times which none of us have got any kind of precedent for. And and I think people are facing a, a lot of challenges that come from this. 
Um, in addition to the worry about the, the pandemic itself, there's lots of uncertainty around employment, people who um, whose incomes are, are at risk or have been lost, creating, I think, a tremendous amount of anxiety. Um, people living in, in conditions now where they're um, somewhat isolated, have limited contact with friends, family, and so on. These are bound to be having effects as well on people's sense of themselves, their well-being. Um, people living in, in more cramped conditions, more difficult conditions, um, and, and so on. So I think there's, there's lots of, of potential effects on, on uh, mental health and well-being. Just to add to that a bit, so um, one thing that happens more or less to, to different people in different ways is that our whole routines of living have been thrown upside down. And obviously, it takes quite a while for people to find new ways of living, adapting to their circumstances. And for some, as Craig says, this, those circumstances they have to adapt to are, are much more difficult than, than others. If people are in financial difficulties, if people have been previously relying on food banks, or if people have been previously relying on uh, care from social workers or community supports of various sorts, and these suddenly are stripped away, and the routine things that we used to do to uh, to manage our lives, uh, nipping to the shops, uh, buying something from the pharmacy, getting our medicines, going to the GP and so on, all those not only become much more difficult, but they become sort of fraught with a certain anxiety. I can't go out, but I can imagine every time you go out, you see empty streets, you see people wearing masks. It's understandable that people should feel disturbed, disrupted, uncertain, and take time to find their feet. And then I, I suspect that the effects on how people are feeling will change over time. There may be as a, a bit of disruption, maybe even a bit of excitement and peculiarity at the beginning, everybody watching the telly and uh, bouncing about to Joe Wicks or whatever. And then as the reality sets in day after day, week after week, um, I think things are likely to change for people. But the point that Craig and I have made whenever we're asked this question is that we shouldn't mistake these anxieties, these uncertainties, this sadness and sense of having lost things in one's life for um, serious mental health problems. It would be strange. In fact, it would be abnormal if people didn't respond uh, by feeling disturbed, distressed, upset, disrupted. If people felt everything was just the same as, as, as it always was, that would be a strange response. It's interesting you say that. I, I myself, I think a weekend after last was, was feeling a little bit, a little bit odd. And then I was reminded by my partner that we're currently in a lockdown situation in which the country is, um, operating on not the normal. So, so it would be, as you say, odd, odd not to feel a little strange. I mean, yeah. just, and people just, are going to go up and down, you know, as we normally hmm. do. Uh, and probably those ups and downs will be intensified by the fact that for most of our, you know, for 23 hours a day, we're stuck with just the people we happen to be stuck with. We don't have others to talk to. The journey to work, which we've always cursed, is actually a sort of strange point of readjustment in the structuring of one's life, the coming back from work, the winding down, et cetera, et cetera. All those things are gone. So we have to invent Everybody has to invent new ways of living for themselves. And, and as I said, for some, these are relatively easy. For those who are already in difficult circumstances, already, as Craig said, with financial problems, overcrowded, with kids home from school, etc., worried about where the next meal is going to come from, uh, these are understandably going to cause a huge amount of anxiety and distress. And I think it's actually important for people to hear that. I think it's important for people as they 
struggle with some of the challenges that this throws up, that actually the feelings of anxiety and so on are, are understandable and, and in and of themselves at this point, not necessarily something to be concerned about. And, and there may be some uh, reassurance in that, that indeed many, many people are going to be feeling this kind of way. Great. I mean, so, so Craig and, and Nick, you both mentioned there this idea that we shouldn't mistake any rise in mental health or even our own mental health. Um, so some of the feelings that we might have as, as perhaps wider, wider problems. You wrote in that piece for the King's website in, the, in your blog post that a spike in symptoms of depression and anxiety was reported the day after the UK prime minister announced the lockdown. However, to think of these responses as symptoms as indicative of mental health problems risks pathologizing the natural process of adapting to radical change circumstances. I mean, Nick, you, you touched on it there. Can you tell us what you meant by this uh, and why it's important? What we meant by it, why, why it was important is because it, it shapes the ways in which people feel they should respond, both the people themselves and the experts and others around. If we start to think of these feelings that we have as symptoms of uh, serious mental health difficulties which require expert intervention, then one set of uh, actions will be taken, often focusing on mental health first aid, uh, getting uh, specialist help to individuals and so on, uh, trying to diagnose these using standard classification scales and so on. If you think about how people normally manage their distress, most people, most of the time, when they're feeling distressed and anxious and disturbed, they manage these without going to experts. They manage these through talking to their families, talking to their neighbours, through social supports and so on. And I think the thing that Craig and I were trying to get to in that piece was that actually we should think about the importance of restoring, if we can, those kinds of everyday supports in people's communities, and especially the supports for those people who do not have easy access to friends and neighbours and so on and so forth. We should try and think about how we can mobilise community resources for people to talk to, just to have an ear to talk to, someone who's listening to you, someone who says, I know how you feel, that's okay, I'm feeling like that too. That's probably as important, if not more important, in the short to medium term than seeking to think of this as a serious mental health problem that needs uh, experts to diagnose and intervene upon it. And Craig, in that piece that you and Nick wrote for the King's website, you mentioned that we're already seeing levels of anxiety increase following the COVID-19 outbreak and subsequent lockdown. I mean, what is the data telling us? Has research already been done on this? I think what, what I was struck by um, was, was this report from the University of Sheffield and Ulster. They found that in the 24-hour period after the announcement of the lockdown, that there was a spike in psychological symptoms in experiences of anxiety and depression. And it just struck me that it's such a normal, natural response to a very dramatic announcement um, that there should be worry uh, some concern uh, about the future and the implications and so on. And and exactly as Nick says, I think in framing that as indicative of uh, symptoms of um, mental health problems, I think is the wrong way to think about it. Certainly at that point, it's the wrong way to think about it um, because it, it does imply a certain kind of response. And I'm not sure, again, exactly as Nick said, that that's the response that is necessarily the most helpful um, and, and, and or is the one that is going to allow us to understand the impact of this um, as as we go forward. And I think there's a lesson in here 
And this, this is around the research that we do. So the way that we often do this kind of research is we ask questions about feelings of anxiety, sadness, and so on. And these fluctuate massively from day to day in, in our normal everyday lives. And they will certainly do that across the course of, of this um, lockdown and, and pandemic. And I think we, we risk doing something with, with the research, which is to, is to misrepresent the nature and the extent of uh, the mental health consequences in, in that we risk over amplifying the extent to which there is, um, uh, there are mental health problems as a consequence of this. If we count every period of experiencing anxieties, worries, um, and, and so on as, as symptoms of, of mental health problems. And so thinking ahead, we're going to see continued social distancing measures in many countries where we see outbreaks. We're going to see continued levels of lockdown. We're not, we're not sure exactly what that will be, depending on the ability to test. But what are the sort of medium and long-term effects of this crisis on our mental health? As Craig and I have said, in the, in the short term, everybody is going to feel certain kinds of distress and we shouldn't uh, pathologise that. In the medium term, uh, our view, my view certainly, is that uh, the mental health challenges are going to be greatest for those who are already in various kinds of vulnerable or disadvantaged situations. Because for them, the difficulty of managing without employment, uh, the difficulty of managing without uh, secure income, the difficulty of managing on often quite inadequate welfare benefits, the difficulty of coping in very overcrowded circumstances for some or in social isolation for others, uh, if they're extended for a long period of time, may certainly lead to people feeling more distressed than they're able to cope with in their, in their everyday lives. So uh, my sense is that in the, in the medium term, what we ought to do is to focus on providing or rebuilding the kind of social support networks that those people in those vulnerable situations uh, require. There may be, of course, there may be a place for individual mental health interventions. Um, there are digital ones which Craig probably knows more about than I do. But we know that in many uh, disadvantaged communities, 10 years or so of austerity has stripped away the social supports in all sorts of ways. And I was pleased to see that uh, the communities minister just on Friday, I believe, announced that a very considerable amount of money was going to local authorities to try and rebuild those social supports because those local authorities are completely strapped for cash at the moment and they're running out of money and they don't have the money to prioritise the kind of supports which need to go to vulnerable communities and vulnerable individuals. I was just going to um, add to that and, and agree very much in relation to the kind of short, medium and, and long term effects. I think that, but also differentiating a little bit the effects of different aspects of this. So there's worry, concern about the virus itself and, and the risk it poses to people's health. Um, but there's also the, the um, worry and concern that relates to the lockdown and that in particular has and is bound to have, I think, the strongest effects amongst those who are already essentially living at the kind of margins um, for whom uh, work is already insecure and for whom income is already uh, marginal. And um, and it's, it's those losses that are going to have the most profound effects. And I think it's as this continues, 
that those kinds of concerns and worries and so on are going to intensify and they're going to intensify much more so amongst people um, who are living with that degree of, of uncertainty. I think that there are other aspects to it as well, which I think are important to flag. There are particularly vulnerable groups, for example, women who um, are living in home situations that are problematic, possibly with a, a abusive and violent partners. And, and of course, the longer that this goes on, uh, the more difficult and challenging those situations are going to be. We've already heard charities talking about massive increases in reports of domestic violence and so on. So the, the long-term effects of the continued lockdown um, are, are potentially profound on our mental health, but it particularly so amongst the more uh, disadvantaged and, and vulnerable groups within uh, society. And I think that the one one other aspect to this, which is is important and, and it relates to what Nick is saying about the need for us to draw from our natural resources, possibly unique to this situation compared with other uh, similar kind of crises in the past, is that the 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 lockdown actually takes from people the the very source of natural support that might otherwise be available, that capacity to speak to, to socialize with uh, friends, family, to draw from that kind of input. Um, so we, we almost have a kind of uh, a double hit of, of, of massively increased anxieties around various kinds of issues, but also then a loss of the natural supports that might otherwise enable us to, to deal with those kinds of uh, challenges. And so I guess in terms of what needs to be done, then there's a, there's a lot I think that government can do to reduce the sorts of anxieties that people are experiencing. Um, particularly in relation to income, in relation to uh, work security, um, in providing for people who are uh, most vulnerable to be able to access sources of help and support and, and, and so on. So I think that there, there is a lot of dimensions to this, um, but also a lot that can be done by government and by policy um, over and above what we might do ourselves as, uh, in, in, in our kind of communities. I absolutely agree with Craig. And just to make a couple of extra points, I know from my personal experience that having been advised that uh, if we were shielding, as I said we were, uh, there were various sources of support that we could access. Uh, but trying to access those supports, even for people to pick up medication, to find slots from uh, supermarkets to deliver food, to understand what we should do in, in medical emergencies and so on. It was actually, even for us, who are pretty savvy in the internet, it was actually quite difficult to work your way through all the different uh, processes to find information. So information is really, really important and ease of access to that information is really important. Secondly, as Craig says, our, our natural sources of support are probably most important when people face a crisis. So we know from previous research on short-term crises that actually counselling or formal mental health intervention immediately after a crisis, like having an experience in a fire or bombing and whatever, whatever it happens to be, that's actually not terribly helpful. What's most helpful is for people to have a chat with their friends about something which is completely different. Go down to the cafe and have a talk about the football match or whatever it happens to be. Try and restore your normal contacts. Now, we know those things are really, really difficult to do in the current circumstances. So one thing that we need to do is try and mobilize the huge resources that there are in communities to be in touch with people who are isolated. This army of uh, three quarters of a million people standing ready to provide support and having stood ready for, for two or three weeks, still waiting to be told how they should provide that support shows us that there is actually a great depth of willingness in our communities for people to reach out and help others. 
And I think the ways in which government can support those are really important and support the charities and support the local authorities and support those at a multitude of local levels seems to me to be most important. And I, and I think there's another really important aspect to this, and that is that at the moment, the way that we do keep connected in exactly what we're doing here is using the internet. But for those who, say, have lost their jobs or their income has declined and who are looking and, and, and need to cut costs in order to be able to provide food and so on, what are the things that are most likely to go? It's access to the internet. These These are costs that for many people are going to be challenging. So again, those people who are living um, at the kind of financial margins, their capacity to be able to connect with people via the internet is also the thing that is likely to be more often reduced. And I think we need to think very seriously about that. And as a simple measure, um, and I'm not an economist, so I don't know about the cost of these kinds of things, but providing free internet to people at a time of crisis like this may well be a simple thing that could go a long way in keeping people connected and supported. We've heard about how some of the economic inequalities within society are actually driving health inequalities. And, and in this case, uh, we include mental as well as physical health. I guess two things. First of all, what are the kinds of ways that those economic inequalities have a direct impact on people's ability to access mental health provision? And secondly, with direct reference to Sir Michael Mormont, his review just came back to show that the economic policy of the UK government was having a kind of direct effect on health inequality. Do we see those same kinds of issues coming up in terms of mental health? Thanks, James. I guess there's um, just a, a, another illustration of how the pandemic is amplifying and, and laying bare the inequalities that run through society. If, if you think, for example, about kids who are off school because of school closure, the way now that it's... Uh, that, that teaching, that learning is, is continuing is primarily through online resources. And of course, that is going to be more difficult uh, for households where there's either uh, limited access to the internet, where there's limited access to computing and, and so on. So in just that small example, what feels like a, a small example, we see the way in which these kinds of inequalities that run through society already are amplified in the context of this pandemic and, and make more difficult and more challenging for people um, it, who are more disadvantaged. Yeah, and just to, f I, I absolutely agree with that. And just to, to follow that up in relation to, to people who are already experiencing mental health problems. So I think this has exacerbated the difficulties of those who are already experiencing mental health problems and receiving mental health support. First, as you Im implied, James, the kinds of uh, gradients of disadvantage and their implications on health that Michael Marmot and his group have pointed out in relation to physical health have certainly also applied to, to mental health, where mental health services have been stripped to the bone of both those in the community and indeed inpatient services. We also know that those who have serious mental health problems also are likely to have comorbidities, that is to say they're likely to have other health conditions as well. And that means that many of those with serious mental health problems also are probably considered by the government to be amongst the most vulnerable and asked to limit, if not to shield, to limit to a minimum their social, uh, their social interactions. So these are people who would normally rely for their support on care workers, on community care coordinators, on community nurses, on visits to mental health 
centers to, to, to talk to their psychiatrist or their mental health worker and so on. And all those supports, which are as important just for the communication and the feeling of being in touch as they are for any sort of expert intervention, all those supports become much, much more difficult. So I think that, and again, as Craig has stressed as well, those who are already vulnerable, who are already isolated, who are already experiencing both physical and mental health difficulties are likely to have those amplified in these situations. And from, from my point of view, the solution there has to be to try and restore as far as possible those social supports. Some can be provided digitally, some can be provided by technology, some can be provided by neighbours just knocking at the door, uh, by people phoning up or, 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 or whatever. Uh, the telephone doesn't require a huge amount of uh, internet ability to be able to use, and it's, it's quite a useful instrument for talking to one another. So social solidarity and social links and the feeling that we are all in it together is a great support to mental health. And we know that at the moment we're not all in it together, that some are, some are definitely feeling the effects much more than others. And we need to try and build that solidarity a bit. You mentioned uh, what um, earlier events might show. Before the Second World War, uh, experts were predicting that there would be a very big rise of, uh, of mental disorder, uh, of, of people wanting to go to hospital, of people needing expert mental health support during the Second World War. And in fact, that was not the case. Uh, people accessed hospitals less frequently. People felt uh, less in need of expert support. Uh, rates of suicide dropped and so on. And that's partly, I know there's a myth of the blitz spirit and, and social solidarity and so on, but it's partly because in that period of total war, there was a sense that we were all in it together, that everybody was suffering. And of course, in those situations during the bombing, people would get together in their air raid centers and so on. We need to try and recreate some of that. I'm not being hand-wavingly romantic about that. We do actually know from evidence that these forms of social support reduce people's levels of anxiety and depression and reduce their need to access uh, specialist services. I think there's a, there's a, a longer-term question, which perhaps we ought to get to uh, in a separate bit of this discussion, which is, uh, what are going to be the longer term implications of, of this kind of event uh, for people's mental health? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned the, the Second World War, I guess. Younger generations um, often feel that they maybe uh, wouldn't, wouldn't match up to that challenge. But I think it's striking how similar the reactions to this are when you go back and read um, some of the recent histories of the Blitz, actually, some of the, the reactions are similar to that um, that we've seen in this in this crisis. So we're, perhaps we're not as changed as we think we are. So just, yeah, just, find... just to, just sorry, to make a point, of, a point about that, James, sorry to, to jump in. But for instance, if you look at some a recent horrible event, the, the fire at Grenfell Tower, you saw how rapidly the people around in that community stepped in much more rapidly than government much more rapidly than the official agencies stepped in to provide support for those people whose lives have been shattered by that event. We're not as disconnected as people sometimes say. There's, and there are huge wealths of, uh, uh, of, of resources there amongst, uh, amongst our young people and in ethnic groups uh, and amongst, uh, amongst churches and religious organizations who are ready and willing and stepping up even now to, to, to provide that support. Uh, 
doesn't mean government should do nothing, but it does mean that government should make sure that those resources are themselves supported in whatever way possible. We've already spoken a little bit about those groups that are most adversely affected by this crisis. Thinking ahead, we've often seen minority groups come together um, as a form of both solidarity, but also as an actual tool to tackle both physical and mental health challenges. I'm thinking about BAME, LGBT+, and even young people. Are those groups able to exist in lockdown? Are they existing? Are they continuing? And actually, how important are they to supporting society's mental health? Thanks, James. I I think um, it's difficult for me to speak about those particular groups um, as such, but I I guess we all draw to a certain degree from our own kind of social backgrounds and and social groups. And And I guess I could give a fairly personal example, which may relate to this, about how there's a tremendous amount of social solidarity that is there bubbling beneath the surface and and is coming to the fore in this crisis. My parents are currently in a situation where they're um, isolated and and in lockdown. We um, or I come from and, and they live in in a town in Yorkshire. And within a very short space of time, the community has pulled together in a really tremendous way to ensure that um, those who are living in in these kind of conditions get food, and that there's people who are going to supermarkets and delivering food that there's access to medicines, that there's access to money, um, and, and so on. And in fact, my parents, who um, we, we lived during the miners' strike in the 80s, my dad was a miner, and, and their comment on this is that this is the spirit of the strike coming to the fore. This is the, the spirit of solidarity and togetherness and uh, looking out for one another in, in situations of, of, of extreme challenge. And, and I do think that we're seeing that. I, I'm not sure to what extent that's also occurring in other populations and social groups, but I suspect it is. I suspect there's a tremendous amount of that going on out there in, in communities. And that, I think, is, is something that gives us a tremendous amount of hope for what might come from the crisis, that there might be something positive and that these kinds of social connections that are there and that have not gone away could actually be fostered and could be part of a new approach to to the way that we relate to one another and to politics. Yeah, if I could just add, I mean, my my personal experience. So I I live in a completely different situation from from Craig's uh, parents. I live in a, a block of flats in central London, and neighbours that I've seen for years, but I've never really said anything to. A, apart from the weather's good or the weather's bad or the lift's out of service again or something like that, have come knocking on the door, have texted and emailed, have uh, baked cakes and dropped them on, because we we can't let them in, but have dropped them on the uh, outside the door and and knocked and said that they're there, have gone shopping for us, have gone to the pharmacies for us and and so on. Quite without uh, without us asking, they just stepped forward and, and did that and said that they like to do it. So I think there are those resources there. Now, I think both Craig and I would want to stress that these resources cannot substitute for effective political and policy responses, but those political and policy responses need to recognize and support those, uh, those, that wealth of, uh, of community spiritedness that exists in the population uh, and not as, as we often hear, not deny that it exists. It is there. I mean, I'm no great fan of uh, of some of our previous governments and the rhetoric of the, quotes, the big society. 
But society does exist. Community connections do exist. And when it comes to mental health, they are really crucial. And that those, and this is what the Marmot report also shows that those, uh, individuals who are living with fewer social supports are those individuals who are likely to experience greater levels of mental distress, greater levels of stress and, uh, all the consequences of that. Uh, so if we can rebuild or recognize and support some of these uh, things at the local level, I think we will go a, a long way towards learning something from this particular event. Yeah, I mean, it's been fantastic to see those networks come together. And as you say, uh, been a real support for people in these recent weeks. And it's it's fantastic to hear that they actually have a real effect on people's mental health as well. I'd actually recommend there's a piece on the Guardian website from Owen Jones in which he speaks with people um, who have come together as part of the LGBT plus community to uh, organise queer club nights. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, I think the LGBT plus community has often found solidarity on the dance floor at the toughest of times. And I'm glad that that's continuing uh, even under lockdown. So that's fantastic. Just thinking ahead, Craig and Nick, I mean, We've already talked about some of the things we might want to see from government in terms of alleviating some of the challenges posed by this crisis in terms of our mental health. But I mean, what what would we want to see from government in the coming weeks and months? I think that one thought before that is to make the point that this crisis, this pandemic occurs against a, a political and economic backdrop that is important to acknowledge over the past 40 years, um, there, there has been sustained, I think, disinvestment in public services, in the NHS, increased uh, uncertainty and precarity in employment as a consequence of changes in employment law, and so on. And that is part of the context in which this is occurring and is amplifying its effects. And I think that what needs to happen is that some of that, at least, needs to be rolled back, that we need investment in public services. We clearly need investment in the NHS and to ensure that frontline workers have what they need to be able to carry out what they are required to do as safely as uh, as possible. So I think those things are absolutely critical. I think there are some other things that I would like to see, and I guess this is us getting political. I think this crisis illustrates the tremendous value of something like a universal basic income to guarantee a certain level of security for people um, which would mitigate many of the kind of uncertainties and the difficulties that people currently face because of the crisis. And uh, we talked about uh, internet access being an absolute necessity and critical in these times of crisis, but something which I think increasingly is, is critical for people across the board. Um, and a final thing, I guess, relates to access to food. We all know about the impact that this crisis has had on, on uh, food banks and their capacity to get food to people who, who need it most. And we need to do something about that. Um, in, so there's, there's a whole list of things and I could go on. I know it, I, it does get political, but I think it's really, for me, it's this is occurring against a backdrop of 40 years where we've operated and government has functioned on the basis that there is no such thing as society. And so it's really quite interesting that Boris Johnson now tells us that there is indeed such a thing as society. And I think the way forward is for government to act on the basis that there is, in fact, such a thing as society and invest in it. Uh, yeah, I'd absolutely echo all that. Um, and it may seem odd, perhaps, to people listening to this podcast that uh, directing a centre, co-directing a centre for society and mental health requires us to address 
not the development or strengthening of, of psychiatric services or diagnostic tests or whatever, but to rebuild society. But I think that the Marmot report and other reports demonstrate, as does, you know, a whole host of social and political research over the last half century, how crucial those things are. The path to good mental health does not lie in better mental health services, however important better mental health services are. It lies in tackling the roots of poor mental health. The only things that I'd add to Craig in this uh, rebuilding would be uh, rebuilding those local resources, devolving power back to local authorities and giving them the funds, devolving to uh, charities and local organizations, recognizing the crucial role that they can play. And perhaps the one thing that governments really do need to look at the gain at is the way in which payments for welfare, social support have become increasingly conditional not just here in the UK, but uh, uh, across many societies, many advanced industrial societies, by which I mean that people have to be means tested or go through a whole series of other tests in order to qualify for social benefits. We already know before this uh, pandemic that those uh, uh, readiness to work tests uh, had very, very damaging effects on people's mental health. The, the humiliation of going through some of these assessments, the ways in which people fail those assessments and therefore had their benefits withdrawn were really very bad for mental health and showed up in uh, figures of suicide. So we need to move away from these highly conditional welfare benefits, whether we do so through uh, universal basic income, as Craig mentioned, negative income tax, other ways of making sure that all citizens in our society have a, have sufficient income uh, to live a life and are secure in the knowledge that they will always have that income, that I think is absolutely crucial. And one sees something like this in, in some of the Nordic countries. This is not pie in the sky. One can see the development of these kinds of approaches elsewhere. They are crucial not just for general well-being, but for mental health itself. So move away from a system that perhaps at the moment compounds some of those inequalities and problems as opposed to seeking to tackle them. Yeah, they, they don't compound them. And actually, one of the consequences is that some of the most marginalized groups become incredibly alienated from the system itself. Black and ethnic minority communities who suffer often the most in relation to this and perhaps are most in need of some of these uh, access to some of these uh, social support benefits uh, often feel extremely alienated from the system, as do the LGBTQ communities that you mentioned before, James. So these systems, these conditional welfare systems, often alienate and discourage and, and super-marginalise, doubly marginalise, uh, the very marginalised people they ought to place at the centre of their concerns. And finally, the Centre for Society and Mental Health has only recently launched here at King's. You're already... Um, speaking and discussing some of the issues in relation to COVID-19. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about what the centre is going to be doing, some of the research it might focus on um, in the coming weeks, months and years? Uh, perhaps, Nick, if you'd like to go first. Our centre, which is funded by the Economic and Social Research uh, Council, the ESRC, is a big investment in trying rigorously to understand the effects of adversity uh, and uh, uh, social change, which is increasing adversity on people's mental health. Uh, we're focusing in particular on three 
uh, areas where we think this is most important on children and young people, on specifically marginalized communities and on work and welfare. And in each of those areas, we're undertaking empirical research to look at the ways in which adversity impacts mental health of children, the mental health of the most marginalized and the effects of uh, changes in work like the gig economy and work insecurity and changes in welfare benefits like the move to conditional benefits, the way in which those changes are affecting a mental health. One of the key features of our center is that we involve people who have uh, lived experience of uh, mental health problems in all aspects of our work, uh, in, in developing the research strategies, uh, in evaluating the evidence that we have, in setting our research priorities, and so on. And one of the things that we are seeking to do in relation to this particular pandemic and responses to it is to gather together some experiences of those people with mental health problems of their lives under lockdown and their lives in the pandemic. We see this very much, uh, our centre and our, our research programme, as not something just that we, the experts, do about them who have mental health problems, but something that we do with those people who have experienced some of the worst of social adversity and who are experiencing mental health problems themselves. Because after all, it is their lives and what they want from their lives and I should say what we want from our lives, because most of us have had experience of mental health problems of one sort or another ourselves. It is working with people with lived experience that we will begin to understand the real effects of things like this pandemic on people's lives and begin to understand what might actually, from their perspective, make their lives more sustainable, make them more secure, more resilient, able to reshape their lives in the face of the difficulties that they confront. Perhaps Craig might want to say a little bit more about some of the specific research that's going on under, uh, especially in relation to the children program that he directs. Thanks very much, Nick. I guess one thing that we couldn't have anticipated when we set up the centre and and were thinking about the centre in focusing on social change and, and mental health is that in the few weeks after the centre started, we'd be living through possibly the most uh, rapid period of social change that we've witnessed, certainly in, in our lifetimes. And so as a centre in, in, in having that focus, in the coming weeks and months, we will shape some of what we do to look at questions in relation to the pandemic and COVID-19. So to take an example, as, as Nick mentioned, we've got three main areas of, of research that we're planning to pursue. In, in relation to young people, um, we brought forward our plans to um, follow a, a cohort of young people in South London to look at the impact and the effects of the pandemic on the mental health and well-being of young people in the situation of social distancing and school closures. And I think the particular value of that is that this cohort is a, a very diverse cohort spanning both a large range of uh, young people from different ethnic groups, but also of different household socioeconomic positions. So it will give us an opportunity to try to understand what the impacts are across different groups. And I guess then most importantly, what can we do? So what can be done within families, within schools, and within communities to support mental health of young people in these kind of very difficult times? So that, so one aspect of what we're doing as a centre is research. I guess another element to this is that we are also contributing where appropriate to reviews of evidence that will provide us with an understanding of what we currently know that's relevant to 
understanding the pandemic and its effects on mental health. And we're working with various colleagues in relation to that. And I guess then a, a final thing is, and is to come back to, to some of the elements of what we talked about in the podcast is that we're doing things like this, that we're trying to get out there the, the, uh, into the debate, uh, a focus on the particular impacts that the pandemic is having on the mental health of people who are most disadvantaged, uh, most vulnerable and, and most marginalized. So we do hope that the, the center over the coming weeks and months will contribute to our being able to respond to the pandemic in such ways that we can support uh, uh, people's mental health through these very, very challenging times. I want to say a big thank you to both Professor Craig Morgan and Professor Nicholas Rose. As I hope you all agree, they were fantastic guests and we hope to hear more from them in the coming weeks. I know that the centre will be producing work that will be fascinating reading. And I hope you make sure you check them out online, both on their social media and their website. Until next time, remember, world, we got this. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, Please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this. Hold up. 